The human body is amazing and fascinating. The way it heals itself, the way the organs work, the way we can transplant, it's really quite amazing. And yet there's still a lot we don't understand. I mean, I think about consciousness in the brain and how complex it is and how beautiful it can be as well. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Dr. Joshua Mesrich. Joshua wrote, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. Joshua is a graduate of Princeton University and Cornell University Medical College. He's an associate professor of surgery. But the bottom line is that Joshua is someone who has an incredibly deep experience in organ transplantation, both as a researcher, but as a practitioner. I was intrigued by this book because of its subtitle, When Death Becomes Life. I love Dr. Mesrich's view that in most forms of medicine, we are concerned with health and wellness and prolonging life, where in transplantation, death is the starting point. And in this book, Joshua provides an incredible look at his own career and life lessons as a surgeon. And he also does a masterful job of looking at the history of transplantation, something that was believed to be science fiction just a few decades ago. It's an incredible look into an area of life that I had very little visibility into. This is one of those conversations that is for me a deep exploration to indulge my creativity. So maybe you would enjoy listening just to be a curious learner as well. Or if you have an interest in medicine, perhaps are thinking about going into surgery and specifically transplant surgery. As I was recording this interview again and again and again, I kept thinking, man, I'll bet there are college students who are looking forward to their career, trying to decide where to go, what they would enjoy, what they would be good at. And that if they could just have the benefit of hearing Joshua's words, both in the book and in this interview, that that would be a benefit to them, like a blessing for them. Josh, welcome to the School for Good Living. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. Josh, will you tell me, please, what's life about? (laughs) That's a good opening question. You know, I think for me, life is about constantly learning and treating people around you well, having empathy growing as a person, forming connections, doing things that make you feel proud of who you are. You wrote a book called When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. And I learned so much from reading your book. In fact, at one point in this interview, I want to just ask you to respond to things I learned from you that were surprising to me. I had no idea about. But before I go there, 
I am amazed at how candid you were in this book. And I want to start by asking you something that you write about. You talk about, you say, here's a sentence from your book. A couple months into my training, I killed my first patient. It's like, holy cow, hearing a doctor, a surgeon, be that honest about life and his practice. Will you tell me about that experience? Absolutely. You know, a lot of uh, colleagues and friends and people I don't know have reached out to me and thank me for being so honest and asked me if that was hard to do, because I think people have this impression surgeons, you know, never kind of admit their failures. I'll tell you, for me, it's the most normal thing in the world. I'm a really honest person. I try to connect with my patients with honesty. It's cathartic in a way. I think we're not perfect. We try to be perfect, but we can't be. And being honest is the easiest thing in the world for me. I really wanted to write a very honest book about what it's like to do what we do and not sugarcoat it. I'm proud of what we do, but we do make some mistakes. And, you know, that that event, I'll never forget that when I, I guess I did kill my first patient. And I, I was talking about this with a fellow that I was training the other night doing a transplant. But the truth is when we do procedures, operations, or even just make decisions about patients every day. We're doing the best we can at that given time. We normally get it right. We really do. But there are times when we don't. And sometimes it's because we didn't have the information yet. And we would have made the same decision, you know, even given that in that situation. Other times it's an error. Now that's not very common, but it does happen. This particular episode I'll never forget it. I was an intern, a first-year resident, and we I was putting in a central line. And actually, we had a program, in our program at University of Chicago, we had to put 25 lines, or cat, these are like IVs that go into the neck, and the catheter sits by the heart. We put 25 in with senior residents or attending, so being taught. And I had done my 25, and this patient was an elderly patient on a ventilator, you know, kind of very, very thin and cachectic. And I was a little worried about the line. She needed it because she needed this type of access. But I actually considered like, is this a good thing to do in this patient? And we ultimately, I decided that I would do it because she needed it. And the, the procedure seemingly went well, but right after I had placed it, she suddenly started to decompensate and lose her oxygenation, like in front of my eyes. And I was young, you know, this was my internship. So I was an MD, but I was young and it was a scary moment. I feel like I did all the things I should have done at that point, getting the air out of her chest because my needle must have gone into her chest cavity and tried to evacuate that, but it didn't work. And interestingly, I had called her son before the procedure because she was on a ventilator, sort of not particularly responsive sort of in a coma, I guess you might say. And I had said, this is not a procedure with no risk. There is some risk to this. And she could even die from it. I had actually told him that. I had to call him afterwards. And I think that's probably the first time I had done that and tell him that she died during the procedure. And I was very upset. He was actually really wonderful and, you know, helped help me get through that. But, you know, I think it's interesting. We do a lot of procedures and I always, you can't be afraid of doing them. You have to do them well. You have to treat them as a task at hand. But at the same time, there is a person involved. And so yeah. that was a tough one. No, that, that's incredible. And what you talk about with empathy and about acknowledging that we're dealing with people 
you know, it's easy to talk about organizations. It's easy to talk about something like medicine, you know, or a market. But at the end of the day, ultimately, what we're talking about is human beings interacting with one another, you know, individuals. And that's something also that I was really impressed by your perspective, because I know it can be easy to get focused on producing a result, including saving a life, <laughs> you know, finishing a procedure, you know, something like that. But will you talk a little bit about how your view has changed as you have progressed in your medical career about how you think about empathy and compassion while still getting things done? Yeah, this is a great, great topic. And I think about this a lot. So I went into medicine because I, I like to push myself. I like the science, but I care about people. When I started, I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist because I like kids and I thought I could make them laugh when they were sick and uh, this kind of thing. But I got entranced with surgery, which we can talk about later. Now, although I obviously care about people, when you're a resident, you have so much to do and you're on this team and it's an intensity. You have so much to get done each day and you want to be a good member of that team, that you actually can forget about the patient. You generate this massive list of things to do, and you start hammering through that list. And in, in some ways, believe it or not, you can get to the point where the patients almost feel like they're in the way of you getting your list done. And I do think at points during my training, I, I hit that point, right, where you could almost forget what it is you were doing. So I can remember having this massive list of patients when I'm on the cardiothoracic service and running from patient to patient and you need to get someone's chest tube out and they're sitting up and you're like getting them back into bed and they want to go to the bathroom. You're like, no, you're not going to the bathroom. You know, you're just hammering through the list. And when you have time to sit back and think about it, that feels terrible, right? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And I actually think we've gotten a lot better in healthcare, at least in, in surgery at thinking about that. That sounds you know, funny in a way that we'd have to get better at that, but really remembering that we're about the patient and not about yeah. ourselves. I will say like, as I've gotten, you know, further in my training and then ultimately being an attending surgeon, I have a lot more time and I actually have a lot more connection with the patients because I see them in clinic. I'm calling them at home. I'm the one that they entrust kind of their care to. And I just have a little more time, a little more relaxation, a little more confidence in my, in my, in what I do. And I've really been able to connect with them well and be honest with them and say, there are all these procedures. Some of these things are going to feel badly, but we got to work together. We got to get through it. So I never lost my empathy and I in many ways feel it stronger than ever, but there are points in your training where you're just so busy. It's easy to lose that. Yeah. I know. I can totally see that. And you talk about a time in this book, you talk about a time where I think the term is a resident, another resident had quit and you were working 130 hours plus per week. Like that's yeah. insane. And it doesn't sound safe, but it's easy for me to see how somebody could be, you know, less than perfectly empathetic in every interaction when A, you're so fatigued, but B, you're so overworked. It's true. And it does fray at your your nerves and your ability to stay calm. You know, this was before kind of work hours got instituted, which has been a good thing, but there were times when we worked that much. And while you feel like you could focus and get through the tasks, then it would be time to drive home and you could barely drive your car home. So that cannot be <laughs> a good yeah. thing. You're right. It's really hard to keep your sense of humanity and your purpose when you're stressed and exhausted. And I do think you build, you get better at that as time goes on. But that said, we also get a lot more sleep. I get a lot more sleep than I used to. I also have partners. So now if I work all night, I can get someone else 
to do the next case the next day. Whereas as a resident, you know, we never had that attitude. Again, work hour restrictions have been applied now and it's a lot better than that in healthcare. So I, I think although people still work really hard, we're not doing so many of the overnight shifts and then continuing on the next day. But oh, that, that's um, good. I, I feel like they were working that hard. You did develop this incredible sense of commitment to the patient because you were never going to be able to be done until you got them better. So you saw it through, you know, you never signed out in the middle of it. And that was a good thing. But I think keeping your sense of humanity is difficult when you're exhausted. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. And in here, you just mentioned about having partners and, you know, other people who can take a call and things. And I remember a story from your book where you talk about a time where you didn't see a phone call in a critical moment of, I think it was a drive home and you had set your phone down or something. Will you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible story that I, I kind of tingle when I think about that story. I had been, I was an attending transplant surgeon for a while and had a, a, a kidney to do in the evening. It was winter and I remember it vividly. It was a right kidney and happened to be transplanting it into this young, vibrant woman, healthy woman who had primary kidney disease. She was probably in her 20s. And we performed the transplant, went really smoothly did a nice small incision, really nice closure. I thought everything went perfectly. Now I, I'm, I use my phone. Nowadays, a lot of people use their phones instead of pagers, you know, which I think is pretty normal. And I never, ever forget my phone. I have it with me like at all times, but this was the one night I think where I actually left it in my locker and drove home without it. I live like three minutes from the hospital. But I remember this vividly. I got into my driveway and the snow was falling on the car because I live in Wisconsin. And I reached over to where I keep my phone in the car and I noticed it wasn't there. It was about two in the morning. And I had this thought where I was like, huh, well, everything is fine at the hospital. I probably could just go in and leave it. And then I thought, no, I should go back. I'm, you know, I just operated. I should go back. So I drive back to the hospital and pretty frustrated, right? Because that's so painful at the end of a long day and night. And as I walk into the hospital, I'm hearing my name overhead paged, which that's never good. (laughs) I was like, Oh no, what is happening? So I ran up to the locker room and I could, as I walked in the locker room, I could hear my phone beeping in the locker. I opened it up and there were like 10 missed calls, 20 texts, 911 texts. At two in the morning. Oh man. Now, okay, this is really bad. And an anesthesia resident runs through and he goes, Dr. Mesrich, your patient is in the operating room. And I was like, what? So I ran in and this third year resident was there and he was like, Dr. Mesrich, I couldn't get a hold of you. Uh, she's bleeding. And he had called, you know, one of my other partners who was on his way as well. But I, uh, you know, quickly called the partner and said I was there. And I, I looked in the operating room. And I could see her belly was like a pregnant woman's belly. You could tell that she had a belly full of blood and anesthesia was pumping blood into her. We poured betadine on her and scrubbed really quickly and crashed in. And it's just torrents of blood, but somehow I was able to immediately get my hand right onto the bleeder, got control of it. This is one thing when you have bleeding, if you can just get a finger on it, you can take a breath and think about what we need to do. So I was able to just stand there holding pressure, let anesthesia catch up, you know, get control of the situation. And the side of the right vein had actually blown out. So, you know, I've done hundreds of kidney transplants and this is the only time that that exact scenario was happening to me, although there are many other scenarios we could talk about. You know, we were able to not only get control of the bleeding, but fix the hole in the renal vein and everything worked out. But she was tenuous for a bit. 
I hadn't even talked to the family before we got in the OR because of the way it played out. So I had to run, you know, afterwards and talk to them. And we had a very scary couple of days. She ultimately got completely better. And at first didn't, you know, was kind of frustrated with having this complication and everything worked out fine, but she went through a lot, you know, which is scary. And we supported her through that. She was pretty angry at me at first, but I try to, you know, remember when people are feeling crummy and they're recovering, they're not going to be your best friend. So we supported her through that. And then I saw her in clinic and she asked me, you know, was I really close to dying? And I said, you were so close to dying. And she gave me a hug and thanked me. And she's doing great to this day with a great functioning kidney. But you can get into this situation where you're, you do these surgeries that almost become routine, you know, and, and you can sometimes forget that no operation is small when it comes to the patient. And any operation can have a complication that can be minor or major. They all feel major to the patient. Um, but sometimes they can be life-threatening. These things that we do can either change someone's life or kill them. And living with that can be difficult. The key thing is staying humble, staying honest, having this spidey sense of when you're about to get into trouble right before it happens. And being always, humility is everything. I'm always comfortable calling for help. I try to do what I would do if it was my mom or my brother or you know, my best friend. And then I try to be completely honest with the patients and the family. I'm not trying to show that I'm great. I'm just trying to get my patients through it the best possible and to be there with them if something goes wrong. But, you know, I think about it, like a complication can kill someone. It can also make someone's next year horrible. And you have to be there with them working through it. It's, it's, a, it's difficult, but some of my best relationships are with patients that we struggle together through a problem. Wow. I remember that night like it is yesterday, and I remember her, everything about that case and about her. I got the chance to talk to her when I was writing the book, and, you know, she's doing great now, which is, you know, makes it a storybook ending, but. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that's wonderful. And I know despite having done hundreds and hundreds of these transplant surgeries, whether it's the procurement or it's the you know, I don't know what you call it, it's the installation. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the you know, implant, I would the say. The implant, yeah. that they do all make a difference. You know, they all do matter. And and this is one of the things that I really loved about the way you structured the book, that it's this, I think, this wonderful combination of your own experience and insights, but also the history of transplant and the science and the medicine behind this. And I thought that was really fascinating that you, I could, your passion for this, and your commitment to this really shown through, where part of what I love is I know every human being has different set of talents and interests. And yours, with your ability to write, I thought was such a, an interesting, it provides such an interesting window into the history of transplant. And, and you talk about the fact that, you know, prior to like the 50s, that transplant was like the stuff of fiction, right? And I had no idea even until the 80s, like with cyclosporine, that this was not something that was working very well at all. But nevertheless, there were people, mostly men, but I'm sure women, who persisted in the face of failure or being called murderers. I mean, like that was amazing to me to see people that, and, and I love the thing that you talk about how when you operate, maybe you can say this in your own words, but you have all these modern amenities. And these were people who were working, you know, not only with, equipment they were making in some cases in basements or I, I don't know what kind of laboratories, but also misunderstood or even 
I, I want to say persecuted for the work they were doing. But will you talk a little bit about, about that, about the history of it, maybe why you wrote the book that way, the difference between them and you, you know, anything related to that? Yeah. I mean, these are great, great, all great topics. It's sort of mind blowing what these people, mostly men, like you said, I guess that was that era, you know, were able to accomplish. And what's maybe most incredible about it is that everyone around them thought they were crazy, was calling them murderers, were signing petitions to get them out of there. And like you said, up until the 50s and even the 60s, transplant was pretty much science fiction. The first kidney transplant was 54, but that was an identical twin transplant. So that was, that was more proof of concept, I think, even though it did win a Nobel Prize. But before that, it was thought that transplant could never happen. In the 50s to the 80s, it went from science fiction to a really bad science or you know, kind of crazy experimentation. And then in 83, with cyclosporin's approval, it became a reliable a treatment and really a reality. And well, uh, well, and Josh, if I may just jump in right there, even this was the fascinating thing, right? With Sandoz, this this yeah. big pharmaceutical company that that like they instituted a corporate policy that whenever an executive would travel, they would collect soil to see yeah. if it had fungal properties or something. What, Not what just was that the about? Executive, but they had a policy. Uh, they were looking for new drugs, but mostly for treatment of things like cancers but they knew the immune system was gonna be important. So they had a policy that whenever anyone traveled, they would ask them to pick up samples from soil, from trees, from whatever, and then they would plate them in different assays to see if they had an effect on immune cells or on cancers. And That's this amazing. was one that was picked up, I think it was Norway, if I remember correctly, I haven't looked in a while. And it, you know, it had a number, and they did find that it had really strong immunosuppressive qualities. They did some testing with it, but didn't really know what to do with it. And Roy Kong, who's still alive, you know, one of the fathers of transplant from England, read a small paper on this and then applied it to some transplant models, first in small animals and then in dogs. And then he and, he and then ultimately Starzl actually got, made the jump to get it into patients. But I, I did, and, and it's fascinating, right? Isn't it amazing like that we can find these treatments from nature, yeah. you know, and there are many other examples of that, believe it or not great stories like that. But, and I will say these pharmaceutical companies, you know, did play a big, a big role without trying to make tons of money in helping some of these fields go forward. And um, we could talk about that at a different point, but you know, I, I always knew that I wanted to tell some of the history in this book. I wanted to do three things. I wanted to write my own coming of age as a surgeon, because I, I realized a lot of people don't quite know what it's like, and I wanted to give this honest picture of what it's like to do what we do. But I didn't want to just write a memoir. I, I say that I say I'm too young to write a memoir, although I, now I don't feel that way anymore. But, <laughs> um, but I knew that would be part of it. I wanted to write about my patients and how amazing they are, what it's like to be on a list. I, I also consider the donors my patients, and I I think our dedication to the donors is as important as it is to the recipients. And I wanted to write about that gift. But I also wanted to write about the history. I love history. I knew it was recent. I knew many of the pioneers were still alive. And I wanted to have this opportunity to spend time with Tom Starzl, to talk to Roy Kahn, you know, some others, to really get a sense, how did they do what they do, what they did? I knew what they had done, but what I couldn't understand is how could they do it? Because, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, in the 50s, if you had renal failure, you were going to die anyways, because we barely, you know, we were just starting to have dialysis. Or if you had liver failure, you were going to die. So what's the big deal? But I don't buy that for a second. When you have a patient die in your hands, 
and you know that you know you brought them to the OR and they died and everyone's looking at you and you got to go talk to the family it's just a horrible horrible feeling it eats at your soul it's it's exhausting it's emotionally exhausting and to think that they went through this for decades with no guarantees that it was going to work out with their colleagues you know telling them they were horrible people. I mean, with Starzl, they stopped sending him adult patients so he could only work on kids. And these were like children that, you know, yes, they were going to die. They were born with malformed livers, but that's just an incredible weight on your shoulders. And I wanted to understand how they could do that. I will say, you know, the key for me in structuring this book did come from when I read the book Emperor of All Maladies, the wonderful book by Mukherjee. And I, I read it in 2011. This was a book that told the history of cancer, particularly blood cancers in, uh, in children, in pediatric patients. And he used his patient stories to then jump back and tell the history. And I read that and I thought, that's, I wanna do that as my way of telling the history. And I knew I was gonna be playing with time. That was maybe one of the most fun parts of writing this book was how to make it jump around and not make the reader go crazy. For me, getting a chance to spend a few days with Tom Starzl, to, to Roy Kong, you know, a bunch of others was so exciting. And I was able to really, being a transplant surgeon, I was really able to, to talk to them and say, like, I don't think I could have done what you did. Like, help me understand this. Yeah. And like, what, what I realized is, I mean, they were all courageous, right? But I think many of us are courageous. I think to be a surgeon, you, you have the courage to fail. You, you don't fail that often, but you know you're going to, and you have to find a way to cope with that, to deal with that. I like to say they actually had the courage to succeed. They had the courage to persist, to know in their soul that this was going to work out, that somehow they were going to get there. And that to me is, is really, really remarkable. You know, I've, the other pioneers in, in other fields have that courage as well, but it's a very special thing. It's not normal. Yeah, yeah it's, it is definitely not normal. And at one point in the book, you, you use the term driven beast. <laughs> that these, They seem to be a different breed of human being in some way, perhaps. But what do you mean by, by that? Yeah, I, I, that's funny you caught that. So I love that term. I imagine other fields have this too. But in my field, there are, I like to call them beasts. These guys are animals. It's not all guys, it's guys and girls, but I just use the term guys. These are people that are driven, that keep fighting, that are almost obsessed with pushing through these problems that will never give up until there's nothing left to do. Now, there can be times when it's too much, when you are pushing, when you have no chance of success and it ends up being not great for the family or the patient. So we, we can talk about that. Certainly death with dignity is very important to me and making sure we don't take it too far and give unrealistic expectations. But there are also times when you do have to keep fighting, particularly like when you have a young transplant patient that you, you know, can still get through with it. And, you know, part of that is connecting with the patient and the family, making sure they understand what they're going through. But some people are just so driven. They want to keep pushing. They want to build the program. They want to do more transplants. They want to do more organs. And I call them kind of beasts because to me, they're not, it's not normal. It's not normal yeah. to work 24 seven, to be so obsessed with it, almost addicted to it. And yeah. there are still people like that, right? Modern day. I don't know if you call them modern day pioneers or, or what I did in the book, write about two people that I consider modern pioneers and they're very inspiring to me, but it's not, nor the average person. It's really, I don't consider myself kind of 
a pioneer in that way. Like I'm very committed to my patients, but I don't think I always have the courage to succeed. I'm always there for my patients, but there are times when I'm like, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think I could have persisted with death after death for more than a decade. That just would, that just is remarkable to me. Yeah. Um, so it's beast like. <laughs> yeah, I, I can, I can totally see that. And it's one thing, the work ethic, you know, to put in long hours, giving your best effort, that kind of thing. And it's another to do that in the face of adversity or a public opinion that's against you or doesn't understand you. And, and this was something, again, that surprised me. I was very interested to learn about death, about the definition of death and how changing or creating perhaps an agreement of what death is, what are the, it, it's kind of like, I remember when I, I took ground school years ago to learn to fly a plane and I learned there are multiple sunrises, right? It's, and I didn't know that. And death is the same way. There's different definitions, but will you talk for a moment about how do we think about death as a society now and why does it matter? Yeah, it matters a lot. And most people, when they don't start thinking about it, don't realize, just like you said, there are multiple definitions. So I think if you ask the average person on the street, you know, what is death? They'd probably say when the heart stops beating. I think that's what most people would say. And up until, you know, the 60s, that was kind of what the definition was medically as well. And there wasn't really a huge problem with that. Certainly before there were ventilators and before there was transplant, it probably wasn't a huge need to define death beyond that because we weren't keeping people alive in the ICUs on a breathing tube. And on top of that, there wasn't a need to get organs from people, you know, when the heart was still beating, if you will. But I guess as people started to, you know, be able to prolong so-called life beyond what was normally there around in, you know, kind of in the fifties, around the same time that people started doing transplant, some thoughts about this started to change. And the early organ donors were typically patients who had died, say, during an operation for some other reason. And then after they were completely dead, maybe like you might even say a cadaver, then the kidney, one of the kidneys would be removed and transplanted. So it was, you know, the heart had been not beating for a long time. In fact, Paul Russell, who's one of the kind of pioneer transplanters that I interviewed, described that he was at Mass General in Boston, that after a patient died in surgery and was completely dead, then they would call the family and get consent. And then if the family consented, then they would go back to the operating and remove the kidney. So this could be many minutes after the heart had stopped beating. And obviously that had effect on the organs. In the early to mid sixties, a surgeon in Belgium and his chief, who was a neurosurgeon, you know, started defining death as coma de passe, which is what, is what the French had written about actually as early as the 40s, which essentially was what became our definition of brain death. And they actually took some kidneys out of patients that had reached coma de passe, meaning they essentially didn't have any function other than, uh, you know, didn't have any brainstem function. And the he reported this in 1965, and the transplant community was initially horrified, actually. Starzl and Calm were, you know, accused him of killing patients. So it's kind of fascinating. Joe Murray, who ultimately won the Nobel Prize for, for the first kidney transplant, but had many huge contributions to transplant, realized that this was a major problem that needed to be dealt with. And then he was at a talk in 1967, and an ethicist... Henry Beecher, who is an anesthesiologist as well, was giving a talk about death. 
And the two of them got together and realized like we need to make it, you know, we need to codify a different definition. And they ultimately wanted to codify it, not just for organ transplant, but for all the feudal care that was going on in ICUs where patients were hooked up to ventilators and didn't have any definable brain function. So that was as much a reason as transplant was, but they formed a committee, including those two, some ethicists, um, some other docs, and they started working through this concept of brain death. Kind of interesting is that after that committee formed, which was in 1967, the first heart transplant was, was performed in December of 67, and then going into 68, a bunch of heart transplants were performed. And that was particularly impactful because I think most of the public, when they thought about kidneys being removed, didn't think of that as killing anyone, right? Because the kidney, I don't know, it doesn't engender that type of reaction. But when people started hearing about hearts getting removed from donors, and some of them maybe from donors that, that they were still beating in, it caused a lot of fear, actually, both with physicians and around the public. And there were articles getting written saying, are these people taking organs from our loved ones? And that became a really important time to define death as well. Now, I don't want to imply that the only reason brain death was defined was for organ transplant. I don't think that's accurate. I think organ transplant played one part in it. But what they ultimately came up with was the definition of, of brain death. And what they wrote was that brain death, which was testable, where you could show that there was no brainstem function, no reaction, no efforts to breathe, even when you disconnected the ventilator and let the carbon dioxide rise up. So you could show by a physical exam, by some simple testing, that the brainstem was not functioning. They wrote that brain death is equivalent. They didn't write brain death is death. They wrote that these things define brain death. You know, Joe Murray wanted to write these things to find death, but Beecher said, no, this is not death, this is brain death, which is kind of an interesting difference. This ultimately got tested over the next decade when it took some time for people to start accepting this concept, for ethicists to start accepting this, this concept. But ultimately, some organs started getting transplanted from people that met the definition of brain death, and there were actually some legal trials on this topic. It wasn't until 1980 in the United States when across 50 states, brain death became consistent with legal death. In other words, if you are brain dead, you are legally dead, which means in the eyes of the law, you're dead. And for that reason, when someone's defined as brain death, the hospital can say, we're shutting down the machines. You know, we're not going to give care anymore because you're brain dead. Now, does that mean you're dead? Well, I don't know. It's almost almost a semantical question. There are people that say, no, to me, dead is when the heart stops beating. Now, this became very important and is still important now, well, for a number of reasons, but there was a very publicized case with a young African-American girl in California named Jahai McMath. This isn't the only case of its kind, but this this, young girl underwent a tonsillectomy, tragically had a really bad complication of bleed and became brain dead. It's very, very rare. I want to be clear, this almost never happens, but nevertheless, it happened. I don't need to go into the details of why or the operation, because that's not what this is about. But she did become brain dead by how we define brain death. Nowadays, we use imaging, CT scans, EEGs to show that there's no blood flow to the brain. And she had those tests and, and was found to be brain dead. 
but her family, to them, she wasn't dead. Yes, they were hoping for a miracle, but they still wanted her there with them. Although the hospital and even the courts in California ruled that they could disconnect the machines, they didn't end up doing that. She was brought to New Jersey where they have a law, where they don't have laws that care has to stop in the setting of brain death. And she actually persisted in that state for more than a year. I can't remember the exact time frame. This was all written up in a beautiful New Yorker piece titled like, What is Death? And, and I think it's worth reading if people are interested in this. But she interestingly, uh, she never recovered, but she did undergo menstruation, She's kind of interesting because it shows you that physiologically her body was still functioning to some degree. And there are cases filtering through the court, this one and others, challenging this definition of brain death. Do I think brain death is dead? I think brain death is a defined state where there's no chance of recovery, where I can't, I don't think any human being would want to sustain in a situation of brain dead. And I think it's the, when the brain is dead, to me, the person is no longer a person. So I'm comfortable with it being legally dead, but I kind of think saying brain dead is dead is maybe not a medical <laughs> definition, yeah. but I think it's certainly not alive. In the UK, they define brain death as brain stem death, which actually is more accurate because that's what it is. There could be some cells in the cortex that are still functioning, but the brain is not functioning. The person has no consciousness. They have no ability to come off a ventilator. They're not alive. <laughs> this is really important because, you know, a lot of bioethicists, I hope I'm not going on too long about this, but there are a lot of bioethicists that are, that are challenging the concept of brain death that are saying we should get rid of the term. Not that they think it's wrong to take organs from a brain dead donor because they think that's totally appropriate with family consent. The person is not alive, but they would argue, actually, there are many other states, vegetative states, where that's not consistent with what the person wants for life. So one could take organs from those patients as well. We don't do that. We don't take organs from patients in vegetative states that have brain function unless their heart stops beating. That's a different process. And I worry about the effect on the public trust if you started to say, we can, if everyone agrees, we can just take organs out. I personally think brain death has been this great diagnosis because it's taken the onus off the family to make decisions about loved ones in the ICU, whether it has to do with organ transplant or just futility. I hate how we'll often in the ICU say, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to stop taking care of your loved one? At least in this state, we can say, there's nothing more to do. It's time to stop. And I think that's been a huge gift to how we take care of patients that are not, that are done, I guess. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. And, and to know that someone who has agreed to be an organ donor, that their, their gift, which is, I think, a very appropriate way to think of it. I had no idea that that can, that can make a difference for as many as seven recipients. So that, that really surprised me. And what I wonder is, first of all, how? Like, how do you get to seven? <laughs> and second, what do you say to people who haven't yet agreed to be organ donors? Yeah, so I think it could actually be more than seven. But so, so seven, let's count it out. So there's the heart, that's one. There's the two lungs. I think that might count as two. So that would be three. There's two kidneys. So that gets you to five. There's the pancreas. So that gets you to six. What am I? Oh, and then small bowel. So particularly when you have a young or ideal donor, we do small bowel transplants. Now, some of those organs, so that's seven. On top of that, there's more. I mean, you can donate 
skin for burn victims. I have a chapter on my experience with that because I worked for the skin bank. That kind uh, of freaked me out, by the way. I had no idea. I thought maybe I would ask you about, I didn't know that little harvesting. I, again, that's probably not the term, but oh my goodness. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It was my first experience with transplant, but I, we can talk about that if we want. That's pretty cool. But yeah, there's skin, there's heart valves uh, that we use in humans. There's other tissue like ACL, you know, for, for the knee repairs, there's bones that can be used for grafting. So there's actually more than seven, but it's seven that we think of for the real organ transplant. Right. Plus whatever might go to be researched as and well, right? I mean, well, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I think that this ability to donate organs is one of the most beautiful things I'm involved with. And I get to spend a lot of time with donors, both during the process and after, and it has really helped so many donor families and allow them to make some sense of loss of a loved one and to feel like their loved one is in a way living on, obviously not with consciousness, but in some way. I think we, I I wrote about the mother who was listening to her daughter's heart beating in the chest of someone else. And I don't know how you can see something like that and not have tears, but I write about my first experience, you know, meeting with a donor family and I was very nervous meeting with them because I thought they'd look at me as this vulture taking away their loved one and it would be the finality of that. But I I couldn't have been more wrong. They loved talking to me and our team. They hung on every word and then they wanted to tell me about their loved one, this young man who died too young, what he liked to do, who cared about him, what team he liked, which obviously was the Green Bay Packers because we're in Wisconsin. You know, it was this beautiful time to really remember like this is this beautiful gift, this legacy And we need to honor that. And, you know, in the crazy world we live in, it just reminds me how much good there still is and how you can help people even in your final hours. And it is worth a lot. It is a really, really beautiful thing. But like, I don't try to convince, I want to increase education. And one of my favorite things about this book and the interviews has been how many people have, you know, talked about signing up because of that exposure whether it be as a living donor for a kidney or a liver or a deceased donor. And that's amazing to me. You know, it has to be something that is right for, you know, the family and and particularly the person who is donating. But I think getting that education out there is critical. And the more that people can sign up themselves, it's such a gift to your family because if you do, you know, die unexpectedly, which is horrible, it's great for the family to know that this was a gift you wanted to give that, really gives a lot to the family and it takes some of that agony away. So the more people can think about that, talk about that, the better. So if this can help with that, that's, that's great. (laughs) No, I I can see that. And there's a story. Well, I want to stay with something you said. I, I was really touched by and pleased to know, you know, before you perform these surgeries that you will take a moment and honor the person moment of silence, say some words in the OR. Will you talk about that? Yes, definitely. Let me, my dog, okay, hopefully she'll stay quiet. So that is right. So when we do, a, we call it a procurement, we talk to the family, we ask them if they have any words we want to talk about. And then when we have everything ready in the OR, we first have a moment of silence where we think about what it is we're doing. Most of us think about our own loved ones uh, back home. And then we think about who this donor was. This was a person, you know, maybe still is, a per- is I guess, ending there their time as a person, but we think about who they were. And then our coordinator will read something 
often something the family gave us. It may be a poem or a prayer. It may be something the donor had written. It may be who they were, who they loved, where they liked to go. But something that humanizes it, that reminds you that this is this final gift. And it's really powerful and meaningful. I've been on a lot of procurements. There are a few that do stand out, certainly some children that have donated. We had one that was just maybe the hardest ever where the family was in there and at the beginning before we started and they played their bedtime music and then read the book that they would put the child to sleep with. And we were all crying thinking about that, but it was beautiful as well as very, very tragic. And so that one always, you know, you get home and you definitely kiss your kids uh, a little bit warmer. So that's very powerful. One thing that's really interesting is then you have to move to the procurement, to the surgery. And I've always found it interesting how you can have these emotions before and then you have to move to the task at hand. And I got into this a little bit when we were talking about procedures, but like when I'm operating, whether it's a donor or a recipient or whatever, you very quickly focus on task at hand. I I feel like surgeries are like solving a puzzle and some puzzles are a few pieces and are really easy. Some puzzles are like a thousand pieces and seem incredibly hard, but you you develop this mental image from the imaging, from everything you know, and then you go in and solve that puzzle. And so you quickly push those emotions out and you have to do the task at hand. And that's, that's our responsibility, right? To make this work out. But I find that very interesting to go from this emotional state to quickly pushing that out, doing the task at hand. And then as you're finishing, you, th- you start thinking again about, you know, what it was you just did or who it was that just donated. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, yeah. part of business. That, I, that is so fascinating. And, you know, as a coach, I, one of the things I talk a lot about with, with people I coach is emotion. It's about emotional awareness, emotional mastery. And, you know, one of the most simple examples for any of us to see how we can change our emotional state at will, even though we don't often think we can, right? Is anytime we're in an, like an argument with someone and then the phone rings, there's, there's a knock on the door and we could be so pleasant to that person for a moment and then go right back to the upset. But yeah. hearing you talk about, you know, these deep, I mean, there's a story you tell in the book about the child that swallowed the tack, I think, then I, I still, I'm not even sure the name for the emotion I have, but it hurts, you know, yeah. to know that a family lost a child, you know, the one you've just described. But I'm so glad to know that there's, you know, that you and other surgeons are human beings with emotions who have the capacity and willingness to feel that, but then move into action when that's what's called for. And I I think it's really, it's really beautiful. And and for what, for what it's worth, I'm grateful to you. Yeah. I mean, I, this is not the world's greatest analogy, but I think about golf when people like Tiger Woods talk about golf, if they hit a bad shot, the ability to put that out of your mind and move on, you know, to control that and move on to the next thing. And you can think about that later. Right. But like, you need to focus and move on, you know, that tax story, which is so tragic and they're a beautiful family. I think one of the hardest parts of that story is it represents that these things can happen when you're having the most normal day ever. And it's one thing like if everyone is afraid they're going to be in a plane crash or their car crashes, and those are horrible things, or, you know, they, someone gets shot and it's terrible, but like, you don't relate to it. At, you, you know, it's, it seems like a very different thing than when you're just going about your normal day and you're and someone chokes on attack, or maybe someone slips down the stairs that they've gone down a million times. Like these things can happen in a completely normal day. And I guess that's something I, 
I do remember about donors. These are normal people just like you and me, and none of us know what our life, you know, what our day might be like or our week or our future. And at least having this ability to give this gift and to honor that donor is helpful. But yeah, it is tragic. It is very sad. And I think about it a lot. You know, the other interesting side about transplant is then we'll interact with the recipient and you know, always they'll have a huge family in the waiting room because they've all been waiting a long time and it sort of takes a village. And they're so excited that their loved one's getting an organ, but they know that someone just died also. And so it's an incredible mix of emotions and they're so thankful for that. And they want to re- usually want to reach out to the donor family and balancing this exhilaration and happiness with this sadness or even guilt is, is, is pretty amazing as well. And we try, I try to help them with that, but it's, uh, it's beautiful to be a part of it. Honestly, I feel I'm lucky to be able to play one part of this, of this giving of this gift. I get to wrap it. That's how I, I yeah, wrap it. That's awesome. Well, tell me, tell me why did you follow this path? I mean, you talked about, I mean, first of all, I think it might surprise people. It surprised me to know, you know, for somebody who's made a career in transplant surgery that you were a Russian literature major, mm-hmm. <laughs> Russian language and literature. Duh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. you did, and then you did this, but even when you went into medicine, you thought you were going to go into pediatric That's right. work. So how did you, how did the trans, why, how and why did the transplant path become yours? Yeah. So I was a Russian language and literature major. In many ways, I feel like I fell into this career, but I love reading. I've always loved reading. I love reading the long Russian novels. I even just reread War and Peace, which wow. was incredibly good use of kind of the time that we have nowadays. What, but uh, what, do you lo- what do you love about it, by the way? I love how these writers spend so much time thinking about the human condition, thinking about life. I mean, you read Tolstoy, who wrote what in the mid-1800s, and everything he writes about, about love, about war, about is it worth it or not, it's all still completely applicable today. It's just so relevant to interactions we have, to our politics, and it'll have characters representing kind of everyone that we still have today. And it kind of blows my mind. I guess in a way it's sad that we can't pull back and see what he saw. Um, (laughs) I love, I mean, I think the Russian culture is fascinating. I've, I've had, you know, I've spent a lot of time with kind of normal Russian people and it's been fun. I, I haven't been back in quite a while and uh, you know, the countries may be different now, but um, they have an incredibly rich culture and I really love that. Yeah. So I went, I, my dad went back to med school, believe it or not, when he was 40 and I was in third grade, he had been an electrical engineer and wanted to get into medicine. And so I did watch him go through that. And I was pretty fascinated by the stories he told in his training. So that was one thing. I loved Hawkeye Pierce. I just was obsessed with this meatball surgeon who would use humor as his mechanism, but was such a consummate, you know, surgeon. And humor is definitely my coping mechanism. So I I feel like I always wanted to be Hawkeye. But the truth is, when I entered medical school, I thought I'd do pediatric oncology or medicine. I was a cerebral guy. I like to read. I like to think through problems. I like to problem solve. And I'm not I'm the last person you would have thought would go into surgery, but believe it or not, and I don't have any surgeons in my family. We have some medical docs, including my dad who went back and an uncle who's passed away, who was like the warmest, most compassionate doctor you could ever imagine. And so I was interested in that, but when I, 
this story almost sounds too good to be true, but it really is true. My first day on surgery, I, I got in, you know, like four in the morning. I was really nervous, rounding, got downstairs where we talked with our chief residents, found out I was on call, which was good training for the rest of my life. Don't make any plans. And then I was, <laughs> you know, in the OR all day. I didn't eat or drink at all because I was so nervous. I started around 10 o'clock. I was in this scrubbed into a bowel obstruction. And I was feeling sick, you know nauseous, you know, like you feel when you haven't eaten or drank anything. I somehow got through that case and they told me to go next door. It's now about midnight to another operation. And I did not want to go at all. I was so tired, but I went and it was a kidney transplant. This was in New York City around midnight at Cornell. And the surgeon was Dr. Steubenbord and it was a deceased donor kidney transplant. And he had classical music playing and I, it, everything was so calm and he had the vessels dissected out. And then they opened the box and this yellow lump of, it looked like fat came out and they sewed it on. And when they released the clamps, you know, in front of my eyes, it turned pink. And about five minutes later, urine started squirting out of the ureter and they were yeah, squirting it at me like I do that now to my medical students. And I thought this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Like, how can this possibly work? I knew someone had died that this, you know, was in someone else. But the other thing I really wondered was like, could I ever do this? I always have been fascinated by, you know, is this something I could do? Could I master this? Like, could I spend years, you know, training and actually master this? Like, I liked that challenge. I didn't feel afraid of that. I felt excited by that. And that was really my entrance into the whole field of surgery. And I never really looked back. I still, to this day, when I reperfuse a kidney or a liver, I have that same sense of like, I cannot believe this works. And you know, that's part of the reason to write the book is to make sure people understand why this works. You know, like yeah. all the people that made this work and, and we're gonna do even better. I mean, this is, we're just at the very beginning in my opinion, but yeah. it's, really, it's really amazing and magical. That's awesome. And one thing you say in the book that I was really intrigued by is, I wanna make sure I get this right. The dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest doctor. Yes. Right. What, what do you mean by that? I love that line. I use that with patients. And, you know, I think about it. So when a patient is in kidney failure and we don't have a transplant yet, we do dialysis. And dialysis keeps people alive. And I have a chapter on the invention of that incredible story. Kolf from the Netherlands invented dialysis in occupied Germany, you know, sneaking it around. amazing. Which is incredible. It's really the same process as what he did in the 40s, although much more cool looking machines and much more expensive. I mean, he did it with like sausage casings and a handmade. <laughs> that, that thing, by the way, about when, I don't know if it coagulates or you don't load the machine and blood just goes everywhere. That, <laughs> oh my gosh, that was another thing that like freaked me out. Yeah, when he was figuring it out, he had to, it was trial and error and he would do it in the middle of the night so that most people didn't know he was doing it. And occasionally the Nazis would come in to explore the hospital and he just, acted like it was nothing because he didn't want anyone to know. It's a wild, wild story. Make a great movie, actually. But even in modern day, right, where people do this, sometimes those machines, I don't know if they're not set properly or they malfunction. Something goes wrong. Yeah. I thought there was a story in the book that you told about one of those not being set right. And anyway, maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, that's not, that's skipping my mind now. But I mean, certainly that it is barbaric. And, you know, we do like hemodialysis, they you have a fistula, they, we sew an artery and a vein together in your arm and it bulges up like a sausage and then they stick needles into it. And the needles can pull out and people can have bleeding. 
certainly that's true. But well, I just want to say about the smartest kidney, like while we can keep people alive with dialysis, it's really hard to get their fluid status right. They don't feel well during it. They're, you know, we're messing with their electrolytes. They get muscle cramps, this and that. They feel crummy afterwards, often for hours. And yet this little lump of tissue that's, you know, like the size of a fist and looks like no big deal is so good at getting it right. So I just like yeah. to say that you sew it in and it just knows what to do. Like that's yeah. amazing. Isn't it? like, it's totally, it's totally amazing. And anytime I stop to think about the intelligence in this organism, that's beyond what much farther beyond my conscious, you know, or my intellect, I'm amazed. I mean, the respiration, the digestion, the circulation, all of the nervous system, like all of this. And this was something I was interested to ask you about, which is, I know that a modern view of the body is that it's a machine. And in some ways, we're just swapping parts and you make, you know, incisions and you sew things up and things like that. But from another view, there's this real, I could get really philosophical about it, but there's this incredible intelligence and operation throughout the universe. And the thing I wanted to ask you about is how have your years working with the body changed, if at all, an awareness or appreciation of the spiritual? Yeah, I mean, wow, these are such great questions. So, you know, on that first part, like it is true that like, in some ways you look at your organs, I look at the organs and parts as like, this, it's a feat of engineering, right? And yeah. thank goodness we don't each have to know how each works for it to work. Imagine, imagine yeah. that. My dad reminds me like, I don't know how a telephone works, but I'm really good at using it. But, you know, the organs work in concert. And sometimes I look at people and I'm like, I'm like, how do they fit all those organs in there? I, I just, and at the same time, how much space is in there? Like you talk about that when you open a cavity and yeah. it's just beautiful sight. I was like, whoa. You know, the human, the human body is amazing and fascinating. The way it heals itself, the way the organs work, the way we can transplant. It's really quite amazing. And yet there's still a lot we don't understand. I mean, I think about consciousness in the brain and how complex it is and how beautiful it can be as well. It is interesting when you read about people talking about putting consciousness on computers and you wonder like, huh, is that really something we could do or something we should do? But a whole, whole nother yeah. talk. About it. But, <laughs> yeah. I do think that I think what, you know, I see a lot of both beauty in the human body and mankind and in the universe. And I do think there's a lot we don't understand, but trying to understand it is is so fun and enjoyable. I I think that's part of the reason I love to read so much. And I will tell you, like, I've always been a big reader, but writing this book has massively amped up my <laughs> desire to read. I'm constantly reading. And I want to, I always want to learn when I read, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I like books that the author has really done the work to be able to teach you something, whether it's about emotions or personality or about the real world. And, you know, I, I, th I think it's, it's beautiful to read. I love, yeah, reading about topics that wouldn't normally be, I mean, this makes me think, take, for instance, a book, Lab Girl. I don't know if, if you've seen that book. It was a really cool book that came out a few years ago. And the writer, she runs a lab and she studies trees and plants. And every other chapter, she writes about a different tree or a plant. And then every other chapter, she writes about running a lab. And I, it's, a it's a great book because she totally captures that feeling at two in the morning when you get a piece of data, even if it's so small. And I have a lab and I, I get that. But like in the chapters on trees... I would have thought, honestly, this is a topic I don't care about that much. I mean, I like nature, but like really normally wouldn't. But like reading about how these trees communicate with each other and how they communicate danger or, you know, infection or pestilence is coming through. Like, it's so amazing how the world works and how it balances and, you know, the effects we're having on the world and the planet. And 
I, I love learning about it and reading about it. And, you know, that's, that's one of my biggest joys, honestly. Yeah. It reminds me of that, that title, the Richard Feynman biography of the joy. I think it's the joy of figuring things out. Yeah. Right. And then, and then I also think hearing you share about this, that saying by William Butler Yeats about the world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. Right. Just how incredible that is. But, and I, mean, um, I think the assignment, the, just the curious mind of knowing, like, not assuming you know things, trying to learn, being humble, realizing that if you didn't find something's wrong, it just means you haven't proved it yet. You know, like, yeah. I think having this curiosity about the world around you. So I think doing things like transplant has, has really kept me humble about that, about the world around me. Yeah, I can, I can see that for sure. Okay, so let me ask you this and then. I was really interested to hear you talk about feeling ready, right? Because I know you did four years at Cornell, a surgical internship in the first year of residency at the University of Chicago, three years performing research at Massachusetts General, then back to Chicago for three more years of general, I'm sorry, of surgical residency, and then a two-year fellowship in organ transplantation. So like more than a decade of learning and practice. And yet, if I understand right, there was a point at which Maybe you should have been ready, but still didn't feel ready. And I think that's a normal experience for human beings. Like I remember when I took my daughter home, my first child from the hospital, and I was like, they're just going to let me leave with this? (laughs) Shouldn't I like pass a test or something? But will you talk about feeling ready? Yes. Another great topic. I always assumed, I remember starting as an intern, this was 1997. So the first year after medical school and seeing you know, my chief residents and my attendings, and it seemed like they knew what they were doing. And I knew there was so much ahead of me, but I always assumed there would be this epiphany where suddenly I would get it. Like, I don't know if it would be in three years or four years or five years, but suddenly I'd be like, okay, I get it. I know everything. And then any question that gets asked, I'm going to know what to do because I'm just going to have learned it and I'm going to just know how to operate. It's completely not like that. There is no moment where you're like, I got this, I get it now. You get more and more comfortable making decisions based on some mix of knowledge, experience, and gut feeling. And still to this day, I have to use a lot of gut feeling because you never know exactly, you know, what's going to happen. I did, one of my favorite part stories in the book is those first two years, I was a really great junior resident because I was an animal, if you will, a beast at getting all the tasks done. And just always when people would get out of the OR, I had done everything that needed to be done. But I wasn't really learning how to operate at all. I just wasn't focusing on that. And I scrubbed in to do a, a hernia repair with one of my chief residents, who's a particularly brutal person. And he thought I was going to be good because I was like known as one of the best residents. And he just said, okay, start doing the case. And I had no idea what to do. I just assumed you know, I would tell jokes and hang out and I kind of follow their lead and I wasn't really doing it. And Charlie stopped me and said, you know what? People say you're this really good resident, but you have no idea what you're doing. You haven't progressed at all and you're way behind. And honestly, it was painful, but I've always been pretty good at taking criticism and kind of trying to take that in. And I realized like he was right. I was focusing on getting everything done, but not going home and reading about the operations and then rereading and asking myself, do I know what am I advancing? That helped me a lot. But, you know, the other, still, you get out, you finish your training and you get out and you're, you're still like, we still have these moments at night where you're like, I'm a fraud. I, I can't yeah, do it. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I, I, when I was booking my first operation as an attending, I 
is suddenly this, even though you've done a lot as a trainee and even a lot where you're on your own, it's this first time where no one is making sure you should do that. Like, I'm like, I can book this operation and no one knows I booked it. I wanted to like tell someone. And I write about the first transplant that I did where I was really nervous. And I, it, the donor who was his wife was a nurse and I was so, and it was a challenging transplant. And he, he said to me, you know, the patient said how many, my partner had done a kidney in this patient years before my senior partner. And he was originally supposed to do it, but then he was out of town. And so this gentleman said to me, you know, how many of these have you done? And I said, you know, <laughs> funny, you should ask. Yeah, I couldn't believe he asked me. And I, maybe he heard like the nervousness in my voice, but I said, you know, I've done a few hundred as a trainee, but this is my first time as an attending. And if you're not comfortable with that, you know, I can, I want, I totally wanted him to say, no, I said, if you're not comfortable with that, I can get one of my partners to do it. And his wife said, listen, we should get someone else to do it. And he said, no, I trust him. And he actually said, I think God wants him to do it. And I was like, wow, no, no, go with the wife. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Everything ended up going okay. And you know, I was careful. I had a partner who was taking the donor kidney out, just come in the room as I was reperfusing. And, you know, we take care of each other, but you know, everyone's got to go through that. And I still to this day, I'm very humble. Like I feel comfortable doing the transplants I do, but I go into it knowing anything can happen. I do the work of preparing and I'm totally willing to call a partner for help. Like I I don't, I'm very honest when we talk about cases, I don't try to act like I'm some hero because I'm not. And um, yeah, but you never, there is never this epiphany. You get more and more experience. You get more, oh, I had a case like that or I wish I hadn't done this that time. And that all builds your canon of knowledge. Yeah. But every patient's different, you know? So you gotta be humble. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, so in just, a f- in just a few moments, I wanna transition us to the enlightening lightning round. But before we do, before we go there, I want I want to do two things. I want to look at my list of questions to see if there's anything else I wanted to be sure to ask. But the other thing that I want to do, and let me let me start with this one. What haven't we talked about yet related to the book or your life or your work that you think might be of service to the listener or you just want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I guess the two things I would mention that we haven't really gotten into heavily is living donations. And we talk mostly about deceased donation. So that's its own special area. And then the second, which is related to that is kind of innovation in the future, because I think transplant is, and the book is all about innovation. To me, it's like landing a man on the moon, which is like, I can't believe we did that. Right. And I think transplant is kind of like that too. It's not only this incredible achievement, but it's massively inspiring. It's something we should be super proud of. And it's just the start. And so I look at the, we made this first gigantic step. I kind of think science is like, you get these quantum jumps And then you have the hard years of figuring out how to use that. And then you get the next quantum jump. So there's always got to be this period when you get that quantum jump of like the nitty gritty of like, how do we actually apply this? So I think figuring out how to do the surgery was the first thing. And then immunosuppression, maybe culminating with cyclosporin, which was approved in 83, was was the big quantum jump. You know, since then, we've advanced in many ways. And we certainly are using many different medications. But I wouldn't say we've had the quantum jump. I think in a few areas we have, um, so like in the area of living donation. So living donation is like such an incredible thing where people actually come in and sign up to donate a piece of them. Most commonly a kidney can be part of a liver as well. And to me, these people are incredibly heroic. Sometimes they're saving 
a friend or family member. Sometimes they're just donating into the pool, which is like so incredible. To me, these people are like uh, running into a burning building to save someone. It is safe, but safe doesn't mean zero risk. And it doesn't mean you don't go through that. Now in that field, we've, we've really had some huge advances. The biggest one, in my opinion, in this kidney swapping or paired exchange, where we are able to actually take a kidney out, put it on a plane, send it to California or Utah, and then they take a kidney out and send it to us and we can have chains. And so like that has been a huge quantum change in our practice. We're doing a ton of those now. So, so talk about that for just a moment, because you just mentioned it, but I don't, I don't know that I fully understand it or somebody listening, but what my, my limited understanding of this is that one person can donate, not necessarily to a specific individual, but like you said, into a pool. And then because these are, are recipient specific, it then creates a chain where many people are able to receive one who wouldn't have been able to if someone hadn't catalyzed it by making that initial donation. Is that right? That's exactly right. A yeah, good word, catalyze. So I sometimes forget that this is, uh, it's really simple math. So there's two scenarios. Picture this. You want to donate a kidney to your brother. Your brother is an incompatible blood type. So say you're blood type A and your brother is blood type B and you're totally healthy, you could donate, but you can't do that. So what do we do? Well, you could find a different donor, but that's hard. Or we could look around the state, the country, and say, is there someone else that's in the reverse situation where they, you're A and want to give to B, they're B and wants to give to A. But what if you give to their recipient and that donor gives to your recipient? So that's a simple pair. It took a lot of years actually to get this to come to fruition. There was It was happening on small scale. It doesn't just have to be two pairs. It can be three pairs or four pairs where you actually do more complex swapping. That's paired exchange. The chain, which is even more fascinating, is say that you listen to this show or read my book and you say, I just want to donate a kidney to the pool. I don't have a particular recipient. I just want to do it as this incredible act of kindness. And, you know, hopefully it's something you'll feel great about. Then you come in and now you have a kidney that's that can go to anybody. So say your blood type O, that kidney can literally go to anyone. Then it can go, if we have another pair where someone wants to donate to their loved one, that your kidney can catalyze it. So your kidney goes to that person's recipient. Then that person can donate their kidney to someone else who has a recipient they can't donate to. Then that person can donate to someone else. Then that person can donate to someone else. These chains can crisscross the country over a period of months until they break. And so we have these really great complex computer algorithms, you know, that help this to happen. And it's really quite amazing. I think the longest chain we were involved with had something like 70 patients involved, donors and recipients, and went over three or four months. We work with this, the National Kidney Registry, which is the biggest paired exchange out of New York, and it's amazing. And so like this week, we had, I want to say, four kidneys shipped in on airplanes from other places. And we in the morning would take a kidney out and send it on a, with a courier to the airport and another kidney would arrive that evening and we'd do it. Wow, It's really exciting and fun and it's math. It's really awesome. It's really awesome. That's neat. Yeah. Well, cool. So that was, so did that cover everything that you had wanted to about the live? And the one, yeah, that covers kind of the live donation. I did, I just like, for instance, I, I want, when we were talking about innovation, so like, to me, maybe the next quantum leap has been the CRISPR gene editing. So now that not only do we, did we unlock and read uh, the genes that humans have, but we can actually edit them. And I do think 
that's going to have a huge effect on transplant, particularly in the field of xenotransplantation or the potential to transplant organs from pigs. Most people talk about pigs as the source. Now, this is a topic we could talk about for hours, but I think there's a real possibility that with genetic editing, making the pig organs look a little bit more human-like, if you will, genetically, that there really could be some huge advances in the potential to provide you know, pig organs to humans in our lifetime. Like maybe in the next five, 10 years, there'll be trials with that. So I, maybe that'll be the next quantum leap. And then it'll take years, yes, to get that where we need it to be. But like, that's how I look at transplant. We're a field of innovation. It's gonna keep moving forward. It's so fun to be a part of that and to stay abreast of it, so. Yeah, and one thing I'm reminded of just, you know, participating in this conversation now is about what an amazing time it is to be alive. And the fact, you know, there seem to be these cycles throughout human history of creation and destruction. And, you know, to have not had a global, you know, war like World War II, where we have been able to research and create and to, you know, contribute. It's, It's really a neat thing. Yeah, it's a great way you put, you know, it's really, I was fascinated doing this research. So obviously wars are horrible and there's so much devastation, but they also lead to so much innovation as well. And it is fascinating to think about how much World War II and the programs around it led to an incredible period of innovation. Maybe sometimes tragedies do come with innovation, but I do think we're in a period of incredible innovation across healthcare at the same time that we don't know how to pay for it. And there's a lot of bad things going on. So the science is amazing in so many different fields. What we're able to do is really exciting, even though we struggle with how do we pay for healthcare, which is a whole nother story. Yeah, for sure. Well, and two, I want to, I want to be sure to ask about the lab that you run or you participate Mm -hmm. in, because again, this was something I never thought about. Transplants never touched me personally. And I never thought about the fact that when, when we have a transplant that, you know, our immune system doesn't necessarily want to accept it. And, and this interesting balance between suppressing our immune system enough that it will, you know, be that our body will accept it, but not so much that something else kills us. Right. <laughs> and, but an interesting thing. So maybe, maybe the last part before we transition here, if, if you want, maybe you can just say a little bit about the work you do in the lab and why. Yeah. I mean, you captured the kind of crux of transplant. How do you push down the immune system so that someone can accept an organ, but not so much that then they, you know, get an infection or a cancer and die. So that's been the kind of balance of transplant, you know, since its beginning. And that's what, you know, held us back from being able to do it. I got exposed to research when I went into the lab at Mass General with uh, David Sachs and Joran Madsen, and it was an incredible time of discovery and excitement. I went into the lab because I was exhausted, but I ended up just loving every second of it. I met my wife there too, so that was good, but the research was really good. (laughs) That was good too. I love that time. I love this concept of discovery and being able to take problems and try and solve them, however small they might seem. So when I finished my training, I did start a lab. I work with mice and The reason mice are so powerful is not only can you use a lot of them so that you can get a big N, if you will, to be able to get statistical significance, but we can also use mice that that are transgenic, that have different genetic alterations. So if you have a gene in particular that you're interested in, like, is this gene or gene defect causing this problem? You can either generate or buy a mouse that has that gene missing or that gene overactive, and then you can do things to it, whether it's an organ transplant, believe it or not, we do heart transplants and skin transplants in mice or whatever it is you're studying. 
my lab, for whatever reason, has evolved into studying how the outside environment alters the immune system because I study a, re- a particular receptor that's involved with responding to things like things in pollution. So I study pollution, the air we breathe, the diet that we eat, and how it alters immune responses. I've also gotten really interested in studying not just diet, but, but the bacteria in the gut, this, this, the world of the microbiome and how a lot of people now think the particular bacteria in your gut are essentially like another organ that helps, helps your body respond. And it certainly affects the immune system. So it's been incredibly fun to, you come up with a hypothesis, like I think, you know, this exposure to pollution might make someone's immune system be overreactive because of of how it reacts to this particular receptor. And so I work with someone uh, in, in the, in the atmospheric pollution world who gets me the particular pollutions that I want to study. We break them down into parts. We have mice inhale them. And then we have marked receptors either knocked out or, you know, whatever gene I'm interested in and see how they respond at the cellular level. So it's, it's incredibly powerful and fun. I have some studies where I get actually get stool or poop from our patients, those who rejected organs versus those who accepted them. And I transfer them into mice that have no bacteria in their gut. And then I do transplants in them to see how it might affect it. So you can see how you can take problems you're faced with and actually make model them in small animals or in cells and get, and get answers. It's really a fun process. Wow. That, that's yeah. so interesting. Well, forgive me if this, is this, if this seems like a stupid question, but do you think of yourself as a scientist? <laughs> that is a great question. So I don't think doctors in general are scientists. I think we use sort of scientific method, like we try, but we, but we use so much gut feeling or best guess or experience versus, you know, really true studies. We have studies on some things and we, you know, but you never have the perfect study for that patient. It's certainly some mix of knowing the literature, you know, but also experience plays a big role in that. I think the, I mean, again, I was a Russian major. I didn't know anything about science when I went into medicine. And I think the experience in the lab opened my mind to what real science was. And part of the reason I love running a lab is that it helps me to evaluate data. So like now when I read papers, I'm able to say, to really read it critically and say, okay, this is what it's really showing. And this is what we know. And this is what we don't. There's a lot we still don't know. So like, it's not like we know scientifically that everything we do in healthcare is going to work or not work. It's some combination of science, gut feeling, experience, and responding to what happens. And so it's like the whole art of medicine. It's a little bit science. It's a little bit compassion. It's a little bit respond, you know, detective work responding to what happens. So it's not a scientist like a guy working with cells who's testing a specific theory. (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, well, thank you for, thank you for sharing about that. Okay. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Before I do, let me just check in and ask, how are you doing? I'm doing great. This is one of the most interesting interviews I've done. You've not only done your homework, but have a great kind of great thought process on it. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I, as I said, I really enjoyed reading this and I'm loving talking to you about it. It's, there's so much more I want to know, but in the interest of time, I'm going to keep us moving. So, okay. Again, this is a series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. For my part, for the most part, I'll just ask the question and stand aside and then keep us moving. Okay, great. First question, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. 
life is like a mm. a surprise every day where you just try and treat people well and do the best you can. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? <laughs> mm. How about this? 90% of what we do every day doesn't have the effect we think it does. All right. I love it. I'm going to think about that too, but I'm inclined to, to believe you're right. <laughs> yes. The 90% could be wrong, but it's a high proportion. Yeah. I think about that not just in healthcare, but anyway, so often. Yeah. The decision-making we use can be flawed or different or incomplete. Yeah. Not always bad though. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're right. And what I tend to kind of, how I come at that is about why we do what we do and the yeah. reason we give for it, <laughs> right? That we often don't know why we do the things we do, but totally. we can explain them nevertheless. This is why I think as long as you stay humble and you're honest and you keep evaluating, I think that's okay. It's when you get like too sure of yourself or accusatory of other people or so sure you're right, that's when it becomes a problem. But if we all have some humility and honesty, like we would be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Question number three. So I realize this, is, this might be a bit of a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Wow. I, it would say, be honest, stay humble. Or it might say, treat everyone like you treat your mother. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Question number four. What book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh my goodness. So I, I absolutely love books and we always have a kind of book club uh, going on. So I like to go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. I think in nonfiction, obviously Emperor of All Maladies because it played a big role in, in what I wrote. I absolutely loved the book Do No Harm by Henry Marsh, a British neurosurgeon that was as honest as my book. I absolutely loved and have given the, another English book. Let me forget this. Shoot, it's suddenly blanking my... I'll get back to that. Anything by Doris Kearns Goodwin. <laughs> I love all of her books. On the fiction side, the last book I gave was uh, Pachinko, this incredible fiction book that I read recently. Um, and then, of course, any book by Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. But yeah, the English book I forgot was This Is Gonna Hurt, a laugh out loud, hilarious book about training in the NHS. So that was a lot of answers. <laughs> no, that's great. But the, I, I mean, you know, go out, I love going out of my comfort zone, reading different books, going back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. I always feel like I can never get through all of them, but it's yeah. one of my great passions. Well, you know, on that topic, I had in my interview with Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism, mm. we were talking about realistically, how many books are we likely to finish reading before we die? Yeah. And we took a moment and did the math and it was like a thousand, oh, maybe, yeah. you know? It's like, holy cow. Just a tiny fraction. Like sometimes I get like, I got to get through this to get to the next one. And then I, you just got to remember, you keep, you're not going to read everything. Just try to enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> um, what you I'm do always, read. I always have a stack of books, you know, and I'm also someone who usually finishes books that I read. So I'm not one who like, if I get a little into it and I'm not loving it, I toss it aside. Maybe that'd be a better strategy. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of what's that one quote about some books are to be tasted some to be read slowly and others to be digested or something. Yeah. I forget that one. But right. Yeah, I, I'm that same way. What are you reading right now? Actually, right now, believe it or not, somehow of all of uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's books, I hadn't read the Lincoln book. Oh, Team uh, of Rivals. 
Yeah, Team of Rivals. And given the times we're in, I thought that would be a, a good one to read. And it is just uh, phenomenal. You know, the, the amount of effort in uncovering things that she and others put into a book is just remarkable. But after I finish that, I have on my next on my list. Oh my gosh, I'm going to blank his name. I'm going to have to look it up. The one who wrote A Yiddish Policeman's Union. I think as I age, I'm like losing my mind capacity. Oh yeah, Michael, Michael Shaban. So I, I kind of gotten obsessed with Michael Shaban. So I have another one of his books uh, lined up to follow. So I'm again trying to go back and forth. Right on. Nonfiction. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Helping me develop my summer reading list. I appreciate that. <laughs> Shaban's got a great sense of humor, but also like really honesty about the world around him and childlike wonder. I really enjoy his books. So did you say, was that Shaban that you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Question number five. So you've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you like to take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Mm. I travel a lot, not as much as some people, but the things I, I always have a book. I like a hard, a real book. It's not, not ideal for traveling, but I just love it. And I've gotten... You know, I like listening to music and I've gotten more into podcasts. So I try to download uh, some podcasts for the flight. I used to love running. So I would love to go to new cities and go running, but my knees no longer let me do that. So I have to bring now like my Peloton app. I've become addicted to Peloton. So I think it's critical to, you know, get up and work out to kind of, I don't know, it helps my mind and my body to read. And I love walking around a new city, listening to a podcast. Like that's really enjoyable to me. Yeah, it's a great way to get to know a new city when you travel. Question number six, what's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a really good one. I stopped running because that my back and my knees did not tolerate that. I have started eating better. I'm I'm currently in this weird intermittent fasting thing, even though I don't totally believe in it. I'm curious enough. (laughs) So I've been doing that. I've definitely minimized, drink a lot less alcohol. So I'm kind of one of these funny people that even though I do liver transplants, I've, I enjoy drinking alcohol, but not a ton, but I've definitely limited that now to, you know, just weekends and not very much because as you get older, you can't handle it. So like, I guess all of that is healthy living. What have I started doing? I try, yeah, this is good. I try now every night when I go to bed to take out my book and read and rather than pull out my phone and look at Twitter. <laughs> I think the internet has so many great things, obviously, but it's really tough. It is addictive and just inspires really bad feelings. So I try to not dive into that type of stuff and to read every night. I always have a book going. There's, I, there's no point where I don't have a, a book going. Um, so that's really key. I've been really valuing spending time with my family. I think obviously this pandemic has been terrible for the world, but slowing down the pace and spending time with my two daughters and my wife has been the real bonus for me. So, and I don't try to do these dramatic things, like honestly sitting around watching America's Got Talent with the kids or, uh, <laughs> or just, you know, being relaxed and hanging out has been a, an incredible thing. So, yeah, what a blessing. Yes, I think those things that we might consider little are the things that we might miss most in later years. I have that suspicion. I think that's right. We have this limited time with with our kids and, you know, just being there, right? Yeah, that's that's great. All right. Question number seven. 
What's one thing you wish every American knew? <laughs> if you could just zap like a thought or a, an understanding into every American's mind, what would it be? I think it's that, I guess, uh, huh, that's a tough one. Like, I think I still believe that most people are good inherently and want to treat people well around them, but we don't really communicate correctly. So, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, like, I, I think that I don't know if it has to do with the internet or the way the news works or, or what exactly is the cause, but like, I don't think we talk to each other and we treat people the way we sh we should, or we normally do in our own circles. So like one thing I've really enjoyed being a physician in Madison, Wisconsin, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, but you know, I get a lot of different types of patients with a lot of different beliefs, but I get, I'm able to form these incredible relationships with those from so many different backgrounds with so many different beliefs that are different than mine. And it's not relevant to my relationship with them. And what I find is the vast majority of people are good people who want to treat people well. Oh yeah, here's a, this is another piece of it. So this is a better answer to your question. I think what I have learned is we're all the same on the inside. So like, I do have a chapter in the book where a young kind of white girl from small town Wisconsin is saved by an African-American's liver who died in kind of gang related or that, that not necessarily gang related, but like violent in violence. And the organs are the same on the inside. Like we all have different backgrounds, but we all work the same way. And so if we just do a better job of understanding each other and communicating, like we're all the same on the inside, you know, we just yeah. need to learn how to talk to each other. And again, treat, treat everyone like you treat your mom <laughs> should be yeah. okay. Yeah. So, so, so simple, but so profound. Isn't it? And we don't have to feel the same way as long as we're just good, right? Like as long as deep down you want people around you to do well, you can have different beliefs than me, but we'll still be able to be friends. <laughs> yeah. You know, and on this topic too, I think the, the point of making the choice to be that way or to be a certain way is really powerful. And I love some of the quotations that you included in your book. And I love the one that you included from Tom Hanks. Mm, yes. Where, right. And, and if you don't mind, I want to read it. So I make sure I get it exactly as you printed it. Right. But, but Tom Hanks saying, I think by and large, a third of people are villains, a third are cowards and a third are heroes. Now a villain and a coward can choose to be a hero, but they've got to make that choice. Isn't that great? I mean, I, I honestly, one of the most fun parts of the book was finding quotes. I really enjoyed that. And I knew I would do that, but I, I found a lot and I had to cut them down. But that was a really powerful one. I did, you know, Tom Hanks, he wrote a book. I have not actually read his book. If he's listening, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's an incredible quote and I totally agree with it. Like, we, you know, life is about choices and you have to choose to treat people well it's sometimes hard, honestly, right? Like, I think so much of attitude is choice. And we can all have different things in our lives, bad things, good things. But you have to make that choice to be positive. I, I actually think this applies to like surgery. So I did a, a kidney transplant a couple nights ago. And it seemed like it was going to be a really straightforward case. But a few things, we got into some challenges, I guess I would use nothing like life threatening, but it didn't go as smoothly initially as I wanted. And being able to just and it was night, it was the middle of the night. And being able to just take a deep breath, relax, 
and be super positive because I knew what to do. It wasn't like I thought we were losing control. It just was going to take longer. Just being able to do that, got everyone in the room working better and more positive. And at the end, we had this perfect outcome. And so much is this, this choice of like, take a deep breath, stay calm and keep treating people well, even when things go wrong, like that gets people to work with you. It's not like that's choosing to be a hero, but that's a bigger, a much bigger decision. But I think his point is really valid. Like we can all choose to do the right thing, choose to be heroes. We can also not do that. And uh, that is a choice. That is a choice. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? (laughs) Wow. I think really listening to people, giving people time to really say what they're thinking and asking, if you don't understand it, asking them to keep going. Like I definitely am someone who can take over a conversation. I use humor a ton because I love humor, but trying to give people time to show what they're feeling and, re- and really explain themselves, I think is, is critical. Like, you know, communication is so everything, right? It, it can be in a doctor's office where some, some docs don't even listen to what patients say, you know, right. We're, we're all in a rush. We're in too much of a rush, but really just taking the time to let, to figure out who that person is and what is bothering them, what's scaring them. I think that's critical. Not quickly judging things before you really know, I think that'd be my answer. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something that you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? Uh, That's interesting. So I think one thing is, you know, I, I do think in general, like most, most big purchases don't give you as much value or happiness once you have them as you think they're going to. So like you're excited. I don't know. I'm not really a car guy, but like, I think I'd be more excited about the purchase than actually having it. Maybe that's just me, but like in general, I've, I've really tried to live in my means. I'm fortunate, right? I'm in a career that has done well, but we try to buy the things that we need to focus on things like education for our children and not be extravagant. We try to give a lot of money to programs that we think are great. So like, for instance, a lot of our charity has been in areas where we can help get education to people that can't afford it. And so those are things that are important to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this for me, like anyone who's going into, into a profession like medicine, you're not going to get rich doing it, but you're always going to have security and a good salary. The smartest thing I ever did was get, a money manager, just a standard money manager, and just said, just take care of all this and I'll just keep working. So I think those of us that train in healthcare, we train for so many years and then you come out and you're like suddenly making a little bit of money and you're so excited, but like, <laughs> that's been really important. What point in, in your life did you make that decision to find a money manager and how did you go about it? How did you know it was the right person? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think this is actually a really important topic for people in careers where you work a long time and for a long time, you're not making great money, but it does go up over time that like, you know, you shouldn't go into the market trying to make this huge win, right? Like investing in some startup. I mean, that's for people that really know what they're doing. And some of my friends in business say every decision where they've invested in something that they don't really know intimately is where they've lost all their money. So for those of us in professions where you're going to 
make decent money, but you know, for a long time. I think the key is early on, just get with someone who's going to do basic investments and they're going to talk to you about how much risk you want to take and just do that and and just look at it as a long-term thing, right? So I didn't get into that until I finished my training and my wife had finished her training. So that was not until, you know, I, uh, I guess it was uh, 2007 is when we got our, our person. I think, you know, when you're training, you kind of, for, you think, I don't have that much money, I'm just going to use all of it. But even if you can put a, aside a little bit, I think that's a great habit to get into. But, you know, these are just, we're, we're it's with a, a friend, you know, it's uh, the husband of someone we work with, but he, you know, it's just a very straightforward, really good firm that has a mix of bonds and stocks. And, you know, I think that's been really a, a smart thing to do. And I try, you know, this is one thing I try to set it. So I, we're really good about, we get, you know, we do, we put all the money and we can from our job that can be matched. And then I actually try to keep a small account of money that I can do, that I can use for some fun things. Now, if some people for a midlife crisis, maybe they want to go buy a car or I don't know, this kind of thing. That's not me. I mean, other than growing these crazy sideburns, like I haven't had a midlife crisis. <laughs> Like, for instance, I got interested in a medical device. Like, I'm in the operating room and I hate the headlights. So, I've been thinking about how can we do a different type of lighting. So, I had been setting aside some money and I started a company that we're working on a new type of light called the Mez Light, believe it or not. And I ended up with a couple of partners. And so, I just have always set each month a little bit aside into this account that I, I know it probably, hopefully, it succeeds. It could fail, but that's, that's what I'm going to use with that money. So, that's been one thing I've done. Yeah, that's great. Well, cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I know it's, I know we often don't talk about money. It's not polite, right? right. But, uh, well, I'm not a professional advisor. So just to be clear. <laughs> no, that's all. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Question number 10. So although I do have a few more questions after, after there's just a few more about creativity and the writing process, yes. if people want to connect with you or they want to learn more from you, what would you have them do? Like if they want to contact me? Yeah. Do you have a public website? Do you have a LinkedIn profile? Or I know some authors don't want to be contacted, <laughs> but obviously yeah, I mean, people can buy your book on Amazon. No, yeah. I, I, this is a funny question. So I, I haven't gone on to Twitter. We can talk about my brother. He has a big Twitter account and he's tweeted about me sometimes, but I, I didn't do it because A, I know I would get addicted to it and B, like, I don't want to personally get into like this this is probably really stupid, but I didn't want to get into this crazy self-promotion that I think sometimes that happens. And maybe I should have, because maybe I could have connected with more people. And there's some really good things about Twitter, honestly. I enjoy reading some people's accounts, but I'd, I also know I love humor and I know I would do something stupid. <laughs> I, I don't want to get too partisan. I don't want my patients to come in and feel some different connection with me because of, of that. So those are the reasons I didn't do Twitter. I Since I wrote the book, I have gotten thousands of emails. People probably Googled me and my emails on there. And it's been awesome. I've tried to respond to every one of them. Like 90% of them, people tell me their story, whether it was with donation, with illness, or something that touched them. And it's been awesome. I've tried to respond to all of them. I thought about in the when we put out the paperback, trying to include that in some way, but it was a little bit too difficult with trying to get consent from everyone. And we decided not to do that. But I've loved it. And I, 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 so I, I guess I would say email me. (laughs) I mean, I can give it or if people Google me, they'll find it immediately, but that's been awesome. And I don't get back immediately because I'm 
busy, but I try to get back to everyone. I try to put the in a folder and I've really enjoyed that. Awesome. So, okay. I, I love it. I mean, I love hearing people's stories, hearing how some of my words touch them. If you've got new ideas for topics, uh, send them my way. <laughs> That's great. Okay. And the final thing here in the enlightening lightning round, I just want to say that as a expression of gratitude to you, I know I've called you Josh. I feel like I should say Dr. Mesrich, you've definitely earned the respect and my, ad, you know, my admiration again for what it's worth. But as an expression of gratitude, one of the things that I have done is gone on Kiva.org and made a micro loan on your behalf to oh. a female entrepreneur named Nicoletta, who's in Moldova, who is a 61 year old that will use, she has two children and she will use this money to buy agricultural land and expand a farm. So just in some small way, I like to think that the conversation we're having here will touch people beyond even who's listening to it. That's beautiful. I love that. That is really wonderful. I mean, I think many of us are, have been fortunate in life through lots of different reasons, efforts, circumstances, whatever, but being able to share that with people is, is just so great. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. The coming down the stretch here on this interview, just a few questions about, as I've mentioned, writing and the creative process. I want to start with this. I, I read in my research that your original manuscript was 300,000 words. Now, for people who don't know, that's longer than the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's a long, and clearly there's lots of stories. People are emailing them to you now. But will you tell me, what was it like to draft a 300,000 word manuscript, like just walk us through, how did you get this book written? Yes. So I'd just like to point out, I was a Russian language and literature major. So I do believe <laughs> Dostoevsky would be proud of me, but uh, the process was incredible. And, you know, I, it did, to be honest, if anyone's thinking of writing a book, it is really useful to have a brother who's a best-selling writer. My brother, Ben Mesrich is a, a very successful writer, wrote some stuff I'm sure a lot of your audience would be familiar with, but he gave me some great advice and he helped me get an agent. That was huge. My agent, Eric Lupfer, was phenomenal. And then I got a wonderful editor at HarperCollins, Gail Winston. So the process was a th a th what I would call a three-year process. The first year was working on the proposal or, or maybe you call it an outline. The outline, you know, you're selling a book and when you haven't written a book before, you got to convince an editor that not only uh, uh, do you have a good story, but that you can actually do it. And so... It's a pretty complete outline that shows you what each chapter is going to be and a little bit of your writing style. So mine ended up around 50 to 60 pages long, and that took about a year to work on. We ultimately were able to sell it, and then I wrote the book with Gail, and it was a really funny experience. So Ben gave me three pieces of advice that I think were two of which were phenomenal. Uh, number one, he said, when you go to write your first draft, just write. Don't worry if it's any good. Don't worry if the words are perfect. That doesn't matter right now. You know, the number one reason people don't finish a book is they just get held up and can't, you know, don't even get past the first chapter because they want to make it perfect. So that was piece number one. Piece number two, he said, never finish writing at the end of like the day or a session, never stop at the end of a chapter. Because he said the hardest thing is you sit down and you're surfing the web and your kids are talking and you just can't get into it. So he said, stop in the middle of a story or even in the middle of a sentence and then when you sit down, you'll just, you know, be able to jump back into it. And that was huge for me. His third thing, he writes with certain targets each day, like X number of pages each day. I didn't do that because, well, I have this other job. But on top of that, I was like obsessed. So I loved every second of this. And when I started writing, 
I sat down and I just wrote like an animal from like, I would get up at four in the morning. I couldn't wait to get out of bed and I'd write from four to six, then, you know, get up, get the kids ready, get them off. I'd write between cases sitting on my couch in my office and then weekends I would write from six in the morning till eight at night. Like, and I would sit in the corner of the room cackling and my wife, you know, runs a lab and she would sit in the same room, like working on her stuff. And she'd be like, what are you doing over there? But I loved it. Every vacation I'd write all day. I just was obsessed. I really loved it. When I started writing, I called Gail, my editor, who's, you know, worked with a ton of experienced writers. And I said, Gail, what, what should I do? Should I write the whole book? Should I write a chapter? And she was like, well, whatever you want to do. So I, I said, let me send a few chapters. So I wrote three chapters and I love humor. So of course the first chapter was like pure comedy and the, then it got a little more serious. I didn't hear from her for like a month and I'm like, oh my God, she's going to just, you know, throw this contract out. But she wrote back and she said, listen, Josh, you're going to have to cut this whole first chapter. You got to trust me like this. You can't, you know, the audience is not going to get to know you, but she was like, and why don't you just go ahead and write the whole thing and then send it to me. And, uh, I was like, okay, so I, I was so obsessed that I just wrote and wrote and wrote and I loved it. And I, but I also went on these huge digressions. Like for instance, when I was writing about Alexis Carell, a fascinating, fascinating guy, won the Nobel prize, you know, a surgical scientist around the turn of the century, around, you know, 1890s to 19, early 1900s. But he also went kind of crazy, was a eugenicist, went and worked for Vichy France, he won a Nobel, then almost lost it because of his associations with the Vichy government. But so I ended up going on a hundred page digression on the history of eugenics, on eugenics in this country, on Lindbergh, because Lindbergh was in this story as well. And I knew when I was writing it, like this probably wouldn't be in the final draft, but I just so enjoyed exploring that. So I get to the end after a year of, so a year on the outline, a year on the book, and I loved every second of it, but I'm like, this is pretty long. And I called Ben and I said, Ben, how long is a book? Because, you know, like (laughs) on a word processor, and he was like, we do books in terms of words, usually, you know, 60 to 100, 110,000 words would be a book. He's like, how long is yours? And I didn't want to tell him. And I said, it's 300,000 words. So I did actually, believe it or not, I sent it to Gail. I said, Gail, I just, I know this is too long, but I need some input. That was probably a mistake. There was a famous writer who wrote a piece for the Atlantic and he, he wrote the process. He wrote the first draft is for the writer the second draft is for the editor and the third draft is for the audience. There may be many more drafts than that. And I think that's really true, but I just wanted Gail's input. She wrote back after like <laughs> a month and a half and she's like, wow, this is a lot. She had edited the first hundred thousand words. Whoa. And then she was like, I need you to kind of apply this to the rest. So then I spent an entire year editing and honestly, I loved that as well. I just loved it. It's hard to cut words because you love those words, but it was really, Gail taught me how to be disciplined, how to trust the reader, to remind me that we serve the reader. I mean, that's who she serves and give them credit. They're going to remember things. They're going to understand. They're going to, you know, you can treat them with respect, but you, you can't write a book about everything, you know, unless you're Yuval Harari writing uh, Sapiens, which another yeah. book I recommend it. Yeah. brilliant book but like most of us could he wrote a, the history of the world <laughs> you know most of us can't do that so um you know i cut it from 300 down to 100,000 words i was obsessed i loved every second of it i can't wait to write another one honestly it was really great i hated the copy edit at the end some person you don't know goes through every word over like a two-week period and that that was the only part i didn't like but wow. I, 
I loved writing it. It was great. That's, that's fantastic. And thank you for sharing that. It just confirms what I, I already knew to be true is that there's a story behind every book, you know, yes. and, and, and one of the questions that then comes up for me is, is this, and it's based on the idea that, you know, I think writing a book is one of these dreams, secret dream for many people, not so secret for others that almost everyone has. And hearing you talk about it, and I know books are as individual as the people who write them, but one of the things that I'm hearing and what you're saying is that what helped you get it done was the fact that you loved it so much. You loved the process and clearly that counts for a lot. But what do you say to people who they aspire to or they dream of getting a book done, but they maybe don't have that, I'm going to wake up at 4 a.m., I'm going to spend my vacation time just drafting happily. What do you, what do you say to people like that? Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, I think, you know, writing, writing is a, I mean, I'm, I've written one book and I, I, have this, I don't know that you, I guess I'm a real writer, but there's some people that it, it's really been their life. And they always write about how it's, it's a really lonely business. My brother, Ben, he writes very, very quickly, but he always says that, you know, the worst part about the writing job is, is actually writing. I mean, he, he actually <laughs> loves it, and, but he gets obsessed when he writes, like he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, he doesn't talk to anyone. He writes like an animal. Uh, he writes very, very quickly, but I think he actually gets obsessed with it, whether I think it's painful to his life and his back, but I think he gets obsessed. So if, if it was like a job, if it felt like homework or it was really hard to do, I think it could be a really painful process. And so I think for those people, if you have a story you really want to tell, but you don't enjoy that, I think that's where you need a good team, a good editor, and probably having a page limit that you have to write each day saying, I'm going to write, I don't know whether it be 10, 15 pages a day or X number of words a day, you know, I don't know, 5,000 words a day, 10,000 words a day, where you, you just have to be disciplined. And if you happen to have a day where it pours out, great, you've written for two hours that day and you're good. But if it doesn't, you just got to sit there and suck it up and keep going. I think the key piece is don't be so hard on yourself. Like let yourself, I, I sometimes think you can be, you're like, oh, this isn't that good. Or I, I, we all go through this period when you're writing where sometimes you think it's awesome. And then other times you're like, this is so, this is trash. I think, you know, don't be hard on yourself. Just get it out there in the beginning. Maybe set word limits. Let it be not great in the beginning. You're going to edit it. You're going to have hopefully a great team that helps you edit it. So just get the main story out. But yeah, I think if it really felt like work and felt painful, uh, that'd be hard, especially when you're fitting it in with other things you have in your life. And, you know, it's really easy to get pulled away, especially if you don't like it. So you, you need to be disciplined. Like, I'm, I'm definitely going to write another book and I can't wait to do it. But I do wonder, like, what if I start that one and I don't have the same love of it? Like, will I finish yeah. it? You know, yeah. like... I'd probably finish it because of my personality, but that would be when I'd know I'd be done. <laughs> yeah. What's the next one going to be about? Have you decided? I'm, t you know, it's been really an interesting process. I had thought that I'd know immediately and jump onto another topic immediately, but it's been harder than I realized. So I've had a bunch of ideas and then I go to outline them and I'm just not into them. So I have two, I love humor. So one part of me wants to write something really funny, like this is going to hurt, but it's not that easy to just sit down and, write a monologue, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure. I, ha I do also love innovation in the future. So I'll probably do something on, on innovation in the future, but I, I'm not ready to unleash exactly what it'll look like. Right on. In the process of writing this book, what did you learn about yourself and how did it change you? The act of writing it or now that it's complete, how are you, how are you different? How's your life different? Yeah. You know, actually it changed me in a lot of ways. It, it really, reawakened kind of 
my enjoyment and love of what I do. Like it is true after years and years, even though I speak so positively about the things we get to do, like it's exhausting and it's hard and it's easy and it can even become routine and writing it like really invigorated me to get back into it, to get back in the operating room, to interact with patients. It has allowed me to really kind of try to slow down and spend more time getting the patient's stories because you can get to this point where you're like, ah, it doesn't really matter. I'm just going to do the transplant. Like it doesn't, you know, <laughs> and I'll be doing something good for you. But it's really got me to try and listen to each person's story. Everyone's got a story, like you said before. So, so that's, that's been something. It's really awoken in me this desire to learn so much about the r- world around me, you know, read obsessively. So those things have been great. Was there anything surprising? I always knew I could be a disciplined person, but I guess I was pretty proud of how I could just you know, keep at it and not get stressed out about all the different things I had to do during the day. Like, I think, I think I'm always been pretty good at managing that, but I felt really proud of kind of the way I approached it. Like I, I wasn't trying to be who I wasn't. I felt like I achieved what I set out to achieve. And that was incredibly satisfying. I'm not saying it's the world's greatest book, but I think I was able to unleash the emotions I had, the respect I, and happiness I had, but also the hard things, the mistakes I've made you know, the challenges that I still face as a, as a surgeon. Yeah, that, that's great. And I, I think you deserve to be very proud of, of this work. And I can imagine that there are many people who are thinking about a career in medicine or maybe specifically in surgery or transplant who would read this and it would make a difference for them to know what they might be getting into, you know, yeah. or the kind of contribution they might be able to make. So I think, you know, I think of that saying, I think it was Emerson about the reward of having done a thing well is having done it, yes. <laughs> you know, something like that. And, yeah. and I think this book is, is, for what it's worth, again, not, I think this book is something that's, uh, that's really special. Thank you so much. I think a lot of young people interested in the field have read it and reached out to me. And um, I think it's very, very honest. I don't think it sugarcoats things. It talks about the beauty, but the challenges. I just want to be honest. People, I mean, honesty is the best. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful. Well, what I know we're, we're here at the end of our time, but I wonder the two final things I just want to end with. Um, number one is, is there anything related to the, to the creative process or the act of writing that we haven't talked about that you want to or you think might be of service to the listener? So that's number one. And then I'll just lay out number two is what final advice or encouragement or instruction would you leave people listening with related to writing or in life in general? I know that's pretty broad, but just kind of a final thought if, if there is one. Yeah, I mean, on the writing side, I, and maybe this could have applied to one of the earlier questions too. I was actually surprised to learn how different nonfiction and fiction are. Like, obviously they're different, but like the process, the standards you're held to and the, you know, the, the challenges and the successes are so completely different. Like I think nonfiction and fiction are as different as, being a transplant surgeon and being a pediatrician, or maybe even not in the field of medicine. Like they're totally different processes. And it was really interesting and fun to work with my editor to understand what nonfiction really was, and then to read some of the greats that do it. But, you know, holding yourself to this standard of either being correct, you know, you can't write about what someone's thinking who's not alive and here to tell us that. Like that might seem obvious, but like you you can't put your feelings into Joe Murray's head because he's dead and you don't know what he felt. So I I don't know, like trying to get everything right or to not, or to be honest about that was interesting. 
and, and understanding that fiction is this whole different world with different people that do it, different people that buy it. You know, editors have a totally different process for it. And there is, I think someday I do want to write a fiction book, <laughs> but not yet. But like part of me thinks maybe it'd be easy because you don't have to, you know, you can just sit and think of it in your head. But actually to write a compelling piece of fiction that has history in it, because I would probably always do some sort of period piece fiction, but that tells a compelling story, I think would be a totally different experience that would be incredibly fun and challenging in its own way. So, yeah. But the, well, the whole world of it, the editors, the people who buy, it's a completely different world. The way they do it, the yeah. way they buy them, it's totally different. So I, yeah. I was surprised to learn that. No, I, I can totally see that. And, and, and I'm going to interrupt my own questioning to, because what you've said has stimulated another question, which is about the act of telling stories that are still nonfiction, which is it's clearly a creative act yeah. where you have, I think, a duty as the author to relate facts as best you can, but still to make it interesting right? To do all the things of show, don't tell and, you know, all this. So I do want to also just ask you, how did you approach the storytelling in your book? Like how did, did you go into it getting a sense of, okay, I'm going to be able to make this point by telling this story in 300 words. How did you know where to start a story, where to stop a story, how much to try to tell the reader what to take from it? Like anything about the act of using stories in nonfiction. I mean, I've, I've, I consider myself a storyteller and, and I always am throwing humor in there and I love telling stories. And so, so I tried to write like I would talk. I've had a lot of people tell me, I hope that's true, that when they were reading it, they felt like they were sitting in a bar and talking to me. It makes me think, by the way, the book, Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. Like, I don't know that much about Bourdain, but after he died, I, I, was, I wanted to know more and I read his book. And I, I really felt like I was sitting with him, hearing his voice. And I really loved that about that book. And I think that's a great way to write nonfiction, especially if you're telling a story. I mean, I put it, an editor helps greatly with figuring out how, how, how long the story should be. I think the key thing is that you capture your voice. And yeah, when you, when you pick the stories to tell, you probably do have something you're trying to convey about that person or about that character. So I do, I think I had a ton of stories that I included that I ended up cutting a lot out of because they didn't add anything in addition to that person or they portrayed them in a way that they weren't really like, and that didn't seem fair, right? Like, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there is a lot of thought that goes into that, like what to include. But I tried to make it very conversational. Like sometimes my editor, my agent would say to me, you know, when we work on the outline, I want this to read like I'm sitting with you in a bar and you're telling me the story. And I like that advice, you know? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't a guy who read stuff out loud. Like, I guess I read it out loud in my brain, but some people do that. But I wanted it to really get it, even though it w wasn't all about me, that you get a sense of the person I am. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah. then that brings us really, I think, to this final question about what's the final thought you want to leave listeners with, either, again, about the creative process or just about life in general? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I do. It's hard not to think about the time we're in right now with the pandemic and polarization and the craziness in the world and get down about things. I guess I, I generally still remain positive. I've always been a really positive person, but I try to look at the bright side of every scenario. I use a ton of humor, even with my patients who are suffering or aren't going to have a good outcome. It's in my process. And I just really think believing in the people around you, always trying to learn more and being humble about what you already know and just interacting with people in that way is 
is the key to life, right? Like you don't have to compete with everyone around you. You don't have to show that you're smarter than everyone around you. There's plenty of room for all of us to succeed or many of us to succeed, but what it requires is like Tom Hanks said, you know, making that choice. And so I think just remembering there are all these great people around, learn from them, enjoy them, you know, try to find the good in, in situations. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna. There are bad things that happen and people go through suffering. So I get that, but trying to learn from people, educate people around you and leave, you know, listen to what other people are going through, right? Trying to connect with people and see where they're coming from because there's some reason they arrived at where they are. Um, so those are my thoughts. I, I feel positive, even though there's a lot the world's going through and probably a lot we need to improve. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and there probably always will be. Yeah, right. that's true. That's so true. That just makes choosing that attitude, I think, all the more important. So awesome. Okay. Well, Josh, thank you again for spending so much time with, with me here today and sharing your wisdom and your experience with me and with everybody listening. As I mentioned, I've loved your book. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm looking forward to the time we connect again next whenever it happens to be. I'll tell you, this is one of the most fun interviews I've done, some surprising things, but it's been great to have the time to really think through some stuff. So yeah. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 